Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to discuss one of the hottest topics in the ESG space, mandatory due diligence of supply chains. The European Commission is due to adopt a proposal for a directive on sustainable corporate governance, including mandatory environmental and human rights due diligence later this year. But at the national level, some European countries have already introduced legislation in this area. We're going to look at what is in place in France and Germany and how this might fit with an EU-level proposal. We also want to discuss how much influence we think the French and German precedents might set for the EU directive. My name is Angela McEwen. I'm a partner based in our Amsterdam office, specialising in finance transactions, including in the area of ESG. I am joined by my colleagues, Charles-Henri Boringer and Thomas Rowland. Charles-Henri is a partner in our Paris office, specialising in compliance and white-collar crime. And Thomas is a partner based in our Dusseldorf office, specialising regulatory and compliance issues, especially in the areas of ESG and tech. It's worth flagging that while we are recording this, there are also some developments in my jurisdiction, the Netherlands. The Dutch government is expected to present its own due diligence proposal to the Dutch Parliament this month. And in Belgium, there is a legislative proposal to introduce a duty of care and responsibility for companies that would require them to make sure that their business considers human, environmental and employment rights by implementing mechanisms to identify, prevent mitigates, monitor, and remedy violations of these rights. As currently worded, more stringent obligations would apply to large companies and to companies operating in high-risk sectors, such as the trade in minerals, rare metals or agricultural products, the clothing and footwear industry, and the mining and financial sectors. The proposal must still go through the legislative process, so we will know more in a few months. But let's now focus on France for a moment. So, Charles-Henri, if I could turn to you, please. Um, so, France has been a pioneer with its own particular model, with a law of 2017 imposing a duty of vigilance over the supply chains. Could you explain what is the scope and impact of this law, please? Certainly, Angela, and thank you very much for, for this introduction. The, the genesis of the, the French law is interesting as it was an immediate reaction to an accident that occurred in, in Bangladesh in 2013. You may remember the, the collapse of the Rana Plaza that killed more than a thousand people and where many international companies, subcontractors were working. So it's a law that was um, essentially driven by emotion and, and we know that emotion is not necessarily a good driver for a law. But here um, I think a fair principle was laid down in this uh, law and the principle is that international groups are accountable for all their activity. They should exercise a closer control over the supply chain and stop exporting their risk to countries with lower ESG standards. So it's the first law in France, and I think European-wise, to impose risk prevention measures in relation to human rights, health and safety, an environment beyond the perimeter of the sole corporate entity. It includes obligation to prevent the risk resulting from their own activity, but also to the activity of their affiliates, their contractors, and their suppliers, including the suppliers located abroad. Technically, 
the law impose uh, an obligation to put together an ambitious vigilance plan that should include a risk assessment, all the major risk in relation to human rights, health and safety and environment, uh, to uh, impose due diligence over contractors and the full supply chain, an action plan to mitigate the risk identified in, in the risk assessment, and a whistleblowing line. So this plan, and that's a, a big part of the law, this vigilance plan should be disclosed to the public to allow the civil society to exercise a control over it. And I think that's the main driver of the law. It's a sort of name and shame logic. There is no sanction in case of non-compliance no, no, with the, the vigilance plan as such, but any uh, member of the civil society, and in particular the NGO, who have an interest can start a litigation asking one for the publication of the vigilance plan and more importantly to the improvement of the vigilance measures in case they can demonstrate that it's not proportionated to the risk faced by the company. So the impact is, is, is potentially very significant and it's interesting to see that, uh, that this law is now a source of inspiration for Europe. Thank you very much, Charles Henri. That's really interesting to hear about that. And, and turning to you now, Thomas, so how does what we've just heard compare with Germany's Corporate Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, which was adopted in June? Thank you, Angela. Um, so the German legislator had certainly taken into account the French law when making its own act on corporate due diligence obligations in supply chains, or in short, the Supply Chain Act. Because, as Charles-Henri just said, the French law was really the first of its kind uh, within Europe and therefore um, could serve as a blueprint for other legislation in other member states. However, I would say that both laws, the French law and the German law, differ quite significantly in certain respects. And could you summarize, uh, Thomas, some of the, the key differences that you see? Sure, happy to do so. But first of all, the German Supply Chain Act will apply to German companies, but also to companies that are headquartered elsewhere, but have a registered subsidiary in Germany. The law will enter into force on the 1st of January 2023, and in the beginning it will only apply to companies with at least 3,000 employees in Germany, and this is both applicable to companies headquartered in Germany and subsidiaries of companies headquartered elsewhere, but registered in Germany. From 2024, this number of employees will be reduced to 1,000 being employed in Germany. And, and of course, we, we, we know, of course, that this is a, a sort of a point that's also being heavily debated at the EU, EU level um, in, in the context of the EU proposals, which are expected uh, later this year. So that's, that's also interesting, Thomas, that you mentioned that. Absolutely, uh, and that was also one of the key points for debate in the lawmaking process in Germany, as of course, for example, NGOs would have wished for a broader personal scope of the law. Now, maybe if we come to the second point, um, which issues are covered by the law? Uh, there, it's quite similar to the French Act, because also uh, under the German law, um, human rights need to be taken into account, but also certain environmental issues. However, as regards environmental issues, they are only relevant if they either have a direct link 
to human rights violations or potential human rights violations, or if they are enshrined in certain international agreements, for example, on the treatment and transport of hazardous waste. So that's, I would say, the, the second point to mention. Thirdly, the German Act provides for a large number of substantive requirements. So it's not just a vigilance plan, but uh, this goes further. Companies falling under the law must establish a risk management system. Under this risk management system, the first step is always to analyze whether any relevant risks for human rights or certain environmental issues exist within the supply chain. So this risk analysis must be conducted in a company's own business operations, so within its own, let's say, structure, but also with regard to its first-tier suppliers. Now, if a company gains a so-called substantiated knowledge of a potential violation by indirect suppliers, it must also take into account such indirect suppliers. And substantiated knowledge is quite a broad concept which may, for example, apply if a company knows that an indirect supplier is operating in a high-risk sector in a high-risk region. So in these cases, the company needs to go beyond its own business operations and its first-tier suppliers and also must take into account tier two tier, to tier N suppliers. Okay, so obviously then this risk analysis is, is really a really sort of key feature. Uh, and, and so what happens if a company does identify um, any risks, Thomas? So if, if a company identifies any risks, it must take further measures, um, which include, for example, remedial actions, preventive measures, of course, with regard to its own business operations, but also with regard to its suppliers. The company must establish a complaint system, either its own system or one that is an, let's say, industry-wide system uh, to which the company then um, becomes a member of. And uh, the company also must report both publicly on an annual basis, but also on an ad hoc basis if required to do so by the competent authority. So that's just, um, you know, these are just some further steps that need, need to be taken if risks are found. So, and last but not least, maybe the, the last sort of difference between the German Act and, and the French law is that the enforcement regime is, uh, is different. The German Supply Chain Act provides mainly for three consequences. The first and maybe most important consequence is that the competent authority can impose administrative fines for violations of the law um, on the comp company. And these fines can amount to up to 2% of the annual group turnover. The second consequence would comprise further administrative measures. So, for example, an exclusion from public procurement processes. And last but not least, victims can also claim damages under civil law. That was one of the most disputed issues in the lawmaking process. Some stakeholders, they wanted to include a specific legal provision on damages comparable to the French law. However, this was finally not implemented. The victims can only 
claim damages based on the general tort law, uh, maybe even only on the tort law of their own country, um, to bring violations before the courts. However, there is at least one new procedural provision that shall facilitate civil law claims. And this is a possibility for NGOs or trade unions in Germany to represent victims of human rights violations before the courts. So that these victims, if they are, for example, in Bangladesh, do not need to travel to Germany to be before the court here, but can be represented by NGOs or trade unions before German courts. Mm. Okay, thank you very much, Thomas. I mean, these are obviously really interesting and important developments, and it'd be also really interesting to hear from you, you know, how has the market responded um, to these new requirements, um, and has there, for example, been um, any enforcement action or, or other litigation, you know, on the basis of these laws? So the market reaction has been somewhat mixed. Many companies welcome certainly the attempt to increase legal certainty by establishing specific requirements. However, others criticize that many provisions are still rather broad and not sufficiently clear. This is, for example, the case for the question as to when di indirect suppliers need to be taken into account, so the notion of substantiated knowledge. By contrast, most of the NGOs have criticized that the German Supply Chain Act only applies to large companies and primarily focuses on first-year suppliers. They argue that human rights violations are usually not caused by first-year suppliers, but rather further up the supply chain. So as the law has not yet entered into force, there is of course no enforcement experience yet. However, many clients have already started processes to adjust their compliance management systems in order to bring them in line with the German Supply Chain Act. And in this context, we see it quite frequently that clients try to combine these adjustments with other reasons or pending due diligence obligations, such as on minerals and raw materials for batteries or in the context of deforestation. Thank you very much, um, uh, Thomas. And, and maybe I could ask the same question of you, uh, Charles or Henri. Could you um, say something about how the market has responded um, to these new requirements in France and, and has there been any enforcement action or litigation on the basis of the, the French vigilance law? Yes, um, and I think uh, the, 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 the reaction of the market was, was, was pretty much similar to the reaction that was described in Germany by, by Thomas. The, there was a lot of, uh, let's say, mixed feeling about this, this law at the beginning. And, uh, and the start was very slow, in particular because this law was passed in, in 2017 at a period where all the companies were extremely busy with implementing the, the anti-corruption sapin de law on the one end and the GDPR on the other end. And so when this vigilance law was, uh, was passed, you know, there was not a lot of resources to, to, to be dedicated to this law. So the start was, was pretty slow. But a few years after, uh, we see that uh, uh, all the industry uh, are now very, uh, very much on, on top of it, increasing uh, dramatically their resources to meet with the, the vigilance law obligation. Uh, we see among uh, uh, our clients uh, ambitious uh, uh, and complex risk assessment over all uh, the supply chain, including, you know, uh, uh, in, for suppliers located abroad. Uh, a very uh, strict uh, review of the risk and 
uh, an enhanced uh, due diligence process. And we also see that uh, some sectors um, have, have joined their efforts, in particular for the risk mapping exercise, and to define uh, categories of risk uh, that are relevant to a particular uh, sector. That, that is the case, for example, in the oil and gas industry. Um, in terms of uh, enforcement action, uh, you, uh, the, the NGO uh, have invested uh, quite a lot in skills and expertise to analyze the, vig the vigilance plan which are made public and they conduct uh, in parallel to the company uh, independent risk assessment about the risk faced by this company and they start public campaigns against particular targets. Generally, uh, they, they start with a notice letter asking to uh, a targeted company for an improvement of the vigilance measures uh, that, uh, in order to, to make it proportionated to the, to the risk that the NGO have, have uh, identified. The notice letter is made public. That creates uh, quite a lot of uh, media attention. And then uh, the company has to react. And if the reaction is not adequate uh, according to the NGO, they start a litigation uh, before the, the French court. So there have been three litigation. Still, they are still ongoing, uh, uh, two against uh, uh, Total and one again against uh, EDF. They're highly publicized. And that's clearly an incentive for the company to improve their uh, ESG process. However, uh, the action of the NGO are focusing, are, are really uh, compliance driven. This means that the, the purpose of this action is to uh, make the companies improve uh, their uh, uh, vigilance plan rather than to obtain any sort of indemnification. To obtain damages for a victim, <coughs> they should demonstrate that their harm is the result of the, the, the poor vigilance plan or the lack of vigilance plan, which is a very, very difficult uh, uh, proof to, to, to bring before a court in terms of causality. So we don't see any, any uh, liability action. All the action that we can see is, is just uh, the one conducted by the NGO to have uh, the company improving their, their, their vigilance plan. And, and to uh, increase the standard in terms of uh, uh, environment uh, and, and human rights. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Charles Henri. Really interesting to, to hear about those developments. Um, and I think what's going to be very interesting also for in taking into account the German and French legislation is, you know, to what extent, um, you know, the, the EU proposals on mandatory environmental and, and human rights due diligence requirements, and um, to what extent those will impact, um, you know, the German legislation and, and the French legislation, which we've been hearing about, which, which are already sort of really quite well advanced and sophisticated. Um, and, and Thomas, maybe I can uh, maybe um, I can raise that with you, first of all, in terms of how you think um, the extent to which the EU proposals may be impacted, may have an impact on, on the German legislation. Yeah. So from almost all the information that's heard so far, it is very likely that the EU will adopt it directive and as you know this directive would then need to be transposed international law so consequently it might become necessary that the german provisions are amended i mean the german government always said that they see the german law as some sort of political support for the commission to come up with an uh with a commission proposal with a uh, eu legal act 
So therefore, um, under the former German government, I would have assumed that they then very quickly bring the German law uh, in line with the new European requirement. Now, we had the, the, the elections, and it, of course, we need to be seen how um, the legislator will react. But in any case, um, the law must not contradict, so the German law must not contradict the European provisions. It must, uh, the European provisions must be transposed. Um, and in my view, it would be actually the best way forward if the EU was seeking for a full harmonization so that the EU will not leave a room for stricter national rules because um, otherwise it will be very difficult to really achieve a level playing field um, amongst the European member states and there would be a significant risk that multinational enterprises will have to comply both with the European requirements but also with different national rules. And at the end of the day, I think such a situation would increase complexity, costs, but also risks. And I cannot see that such a potential fragmentation of the legal framework would improve the protection of human rights. So in summary, I would really hope that there will be a strong, highly harmonized European directive that is then basically transposed one-on-one um, -on -one international law so that there is not this sort of fragmentation uh, amongst the EU member states. Mm. Yeah, no, thank you, Thomas. Some very sort of relevant observations, I think, by you there. Um, and, and Charles Henri, then, if I ask you the same questions in, in terms of the French legislation, you know, to what extent uh, do you think the EU proposals uh, may impact the, you know, the impact the French legislation, which, is, as you've already mentioned, is really sort of quite developed. Yes, and, and, and I think that's very interesting what, what Thomas is, is saying, because when the, the vigilance law was discussed at the Parliament back in, in 2016, uh, many people, and in particular the, <clears throat> the representative of, of the major French companies, uh, claimed that, that France was not the right level for such a law. And, and they were asking that the EU, European Union, should, should take over and, and, and harmonize the standard so all the European company can, can, can play on a, on, on a level play field. So it is, not, it is now the case, or it, it's going to be the case, um, uh, thanks to, to, to this project. Uh, now if we compare the, the European project with the vigilance law, clearly um, the European project go much further than the vigilance law. Even if it was inspired by the vigilance law, it goes further, and it would be very interesting to observe how the two pieces of legislation will be combined at the time of the transposition of the, of the, of the directive, if it is a directive. Just some examples. The, the project as it is today contemplates the creation of a national regulator in charge of controlling the compliance uh, by the companies of the vigilance obligation. This is not the case today in France and, and as we could uh, experience with the Sapin de Law, the creation of a, of a regulator dedicated to this sort of issue will, will really boost the implementation by the company and it will be probably a game changer. 
The second example is that uh, the, the European project uh, provides for particular functions in case of, of non-compliance with the vigilance obligation and, and uh, there is a possibility of a fine proportionate to uh, the turnover of, of, of the company at stake. Uh, there is no sanction as such uh, in the French law. Uh, there is just uh, a, a regime that allows uh, any interested party to go to court and ask for an improvement of the vigilance plan, but, but there is no sanction. There was in the first draft a sanction, but it was, um, it was quashed by, by the constitutional court. So uh, we will see um, how it will be transposed uh, uh, into French law. Uh, last example, um, there is a, in, the, in the European project um, a liability regime with a reversal of the burden of proof. Basically, in case of, of uh, litigation, uh, the company will have to demonstrate that they have made the best effort to avoid the harm submitted by the claimant. That does not exist in French law, as I explained earlier, and it goes much, much further, obviously. So I think uh, we are really getting into a new phase of the risk prevention in the human rights and, and environment area with this uh, European project. Thank you very much, uh, Charles-Henri. So, I mean, clearly we're going to have some, some very interesting times ahead in, in terms of this area of mandatory environmental and human rights due diligence development, which is obviously going to be very relevant to the whole business community. Um, I'd like to thank both of you, Charles-Henri and Thomas, for your great and thoughtful insights into this really uh, very important um, area. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this Clifford Chance podcast. If you would like to discuss these issues with us, please do feel free to get in touch. Um, our contact details are available on the Clifford Chance website. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.